Many years ago, I was in a business meeting with my boss and two of our clients. One of them was a Jewish man, and he remarked that he had just heard about a group called Jews for Jesus. The two clients started laughing about that, commenting at the apparent absurdity of such a group. Of course, I felt a little bit of inner defensiveness as I thought about these folks who I knew something about. But my boss, ever the diplomat, smiled and said, well, at least they're for something. And of course, he was right. Having an identity formed by what you are for is much better than an identity formed by what you are against. Jesus seems to be addressing this issue when he offers some counterintuitive direction about enemies. This part of the Sermon on the Mount that we heard this morning comes on the heels of Jesus' challenging words regarding murder, adultery, divorce, and promises. His formula of, you have heard, versus, but I say to you, reveals, in each case, the the deep nature of the human heart and how it relates to our actions. It's disturbing for us, as it would have been for Jesus' disciples, to hear that when we carry anger, lust, rejection, or duplicity in our hearts, we are in league with those who carry those things out in desperate actions. Each statement that Jesus makes is based in either scripture or in conventional wisdom. Jesus' words on retaliation are based in both. The phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, can be found in the Old Testament book of Exodus, but it was also a judicial formula that was common in the ancient Near East. It was a rather progressive idea in its day, offering a form of reciprocal justice rather than violent tribal reactions to violations that resulted in destruction and death. So the idea here is, if I steal your chicken, it's better that I be required to give you a chicken in return, or maybe two chickens to compensate for the lost eggs, than it is that you would come over and burn my house down, kill me, and sell my family into slavery. That's really more like vengeance than like justice. But Jesus doesn't support the eye-for-an-eye formula of justice. He pushes our thinking in such a way that our enemy becomes the one we serve. The enemy strikes with the hand, and Jesus allows the attacker to exhaust this violent energy by offering to him the other side of the face. A Roman soldier commands the peasant to carry the soldier's gear for a mile, which was the limit required by Roman law. And Jesus says to offer up a second mile for free. The heart behind such actions is a heart of generosity rather than one that demands a balancing of the scales of justice. Now, this would have been a hard word for Jesus' disciples. And it's a hard word for us. We live in a society where both reciprocity and punishment form the basis of our judicial penalty system. In places where Sharia law is ruled of the land, eye for an eye is often enforced literally. In our society, it is administered in the form of either compensation and or jail time. But it's still based in an eye for an eye. We're a society that believes strongly in individual rights, so Our thinking is formed around getting, by law, what we deserve when we are wronged. But when we 
deserve, we de-serve. And Jesus pushes us to serve those we have identified as enemies. Of course, it gets worse as we read on. Jesus seems to recognize that the people of Israel have allowed their identities to be formed by two relational poles, the neighbor, who is to be loved, and the enemy, who is to be hated. Such an identity allows the people to link themselves with those who are like them, their kinfolk, and to stand as a group against those who are to be hated. Certainly, Jesus' disciples could think of people in their lives that they didn't love, but the Romans would probably have taken priority on that list. The Romans were not only to be hated, they were also to be feared. But when Jesus points out that friends and enemies are both recipients of God's gifts of sun and rain, he humanizes enemies and reveals their value before God. This, too, is a hard word. It's a hard word because humanizing enemies, and to be human, is to be made in the image of God. It challenges people's sense of identity. If I orient myself against the enemy, I, I make a claim on righteousness that is in part based on the wickedness of the other person. In other words, I end up claiming that I'm good because the other person is bad. But when the you have heard it was said changes into but I say to you, I discover that my claim is spurious and that my enemy is captured by God's love right along with me. We live in a world full of people routinely described for us as enemies. We seem to have enemies in and from other nations and we have enemies right here at home. During an election year, especially this one, it seems, the political players are not portrayed as mere ideological opponents, but rather as enemies who are bent on the destruction of the nation. We see, almost on a daily basis, a revealed racism that is violent and deadly. We increasingly see lines being drawn in the sand as fear turns to anger and results in calls for religious and racial profiling as well as exclusion. Sometimes there are voices in our heads that want to argue with all of this and say, yes, but look at that politician. Yes, but look at the circumstance that resulted in that police action. Yes, but look at those religious ideologies. Yes, but... And Jesus continues to scandalize us by repeating over and over, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, why is that? Why does loving the enemy somehow make us children of our Father in heaven? Whose children might we be if we stuck with love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Perhaps the answer comes to us when we realize that all along, Jesus has not been offering to us an abstract and impractical code of conduct, but rather an invitation to immerse our lives in the reality of the kingdom of God. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Loving one's enemy is included as a characteristic of life in God's kingdom. 
It's one of the many ways that our followership of Jesus is expressed that run cross-grained to the values of the world. It's one of the ways that we become the light of the world, a light that is shed on all people so that they might see these good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. There's an amazing story about the Christmas truce during World War I. On Christmas Day in 1914, German and Allied troops in France faced off with each other in parallel trenches separated by 500 yards or so. The fighting had been intense for quite some time, but it settled down by Christmas morning. The Allied soldiers were initially puzzled by the singing that they heard coming from the Germans. <clears throat> they didn't understand the words, but the tune was familiar. It was the great Christmas hymn, Silent Night. At the end of the song, the British soldiers applauded and returned the music with their own version of the song, this time, of course, in English. Soon after, some German and British soldiers very cautiously emerged from their respective trenches and approached one another, calling out, Merry Christmas, in their enemy's native language. The men shook hands and traded gifts like tobacco or buttons or candy. Because many of the German soldiers also spoke English, the men were able to share stories of home and family and how Christmas might be celebrated among those they loved and that they missed. The Allied troops from other nations were puzzled and even angered by this phenomenon, but the British high command was even more outraged. Word came down that any British soldier reported engaging in such friendly actions with the enemy would be court-martialed based on an act of treason. On that Christmas day, the English and German soldiers wished each other well and returned to their trenches. And soon, the fighting resumed. There were stories of some, having reached out and loved the enemy, now refused to fire their weapons again. But the dominant voice that saw to it that ultimately 38 million people perished continued to scream, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus' voice can barely be heard over the gunfire when he says, but I say to you. There were times in the past when a sermon on this text would attempt to help people think about their relationships with family members or co-workers or former friends with whom relationships had been broken. It might be a helpful message, one that sought to bring local folks back together as friends and family. That application is still appropriate, but on this day, the word enemy brings to mind people groups and national leaders and law enforcement officials who, we are told, threaten the very existence of others. Such threats are no longer out there for us. They're right up close, invading our ordinary spaces of life. What might it look like for us to love those people? The only way that Jesus answers that question is to offer another word that has been received as hard, if not impossible, when he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And often people respond by saying, right, never going to happen. And of course, it is never going to happen if perfect means without flaw or error. But it doesn't, at least not in our text. 
The ancient Greek word that Matthew uses here is a word that leans more toward the idea of completion or maturity than it does toward our more Western idea of perfection. So if we can visualize love and hate as kind of like spinning cycles or wheels, we realize that we can either break the spinning of the cycle or we can latch onto it and be carried away. We can join into the cycle of hatred and it will spin faster and faster. We can also break that cycle by not offering it the energy that it demands. In a similar way, we can latch on to God's cycle of love, allowing its power to carry us into places we could never go on our own. So to be complete as children of our Father in heaven is to engage in his love, a love that is both directed to God and to others, both to neighbors and to enemies. There's a kind of parallel to be found just a little bit later in Jesus' message, following immediately after he teaches his disciples about prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Like the call to be perfect, it is a hard and puzzling word. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Sometimes people read that text as a kind of cosmic quid pro quo. We offer up our efforts at forgiveness, and God matches us with his. But I think there's something more here, a a call to immerse our lives in God's forgiving love, both as recipients and as givers, because that's how forgiveness works. To do otherwise is to disengage from God's forgiveness. Just as we can give ourselves to the ongoing, continuous cycle of God's love, so can we immerse ourselves in the completion of God's forgiveness by our participation in that forgiving love, because that's how love works. Of course, no one can ever break God's continuous, generous, eternal love. But people can certainly refuse to participate in it. People can continue to live in a form of incompleteness that risks being formed by the power of hatred rather than being made complete by the power of God's love. I envision people like us, similar to those pockets of soldiers over a hundred years ago who, for only a day, broke the power of war through acts of love. I see us emerging in the midst of clouds of anger, fear, and hatred, reaching out to the so-called enemies around us in the completeness of God's embrace of love. There will be others, onlookers, who are puzzled and angered by such behavior, and there will always be the dominant voices of culture that remind us of what we have heard that it was said. But I see us responding only to the voice of Jesus as he says, but I say, to you. And in the hearing, we lay our weapons down and allow ourselves to be embraced by the completeness of God's love.